0: Welcome to Waste, Not, at Feed the Need, the podcast for Lose and Fishes Family Kitchen. In today's episode, we have the pleasure to interview Monica White, Sustainability Manager at Edgar & Associates. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to Waste, Not, at Feed the Need, the podcast for Lose and Fishes Family Kitchen. I have the pleasure to have a Fantastic! What I, what I know is going to be a fantastic conversation today with Monica White, Sustainability Manager with Egon Associates. Good morning, Monica.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you for being here. You're you're the you're the busy one, and uh, <laughs> you know uh, we're so much looking to to talk to you about uh, particularly particularly SB thirteen eighty three this morning. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself and Egon Associates, and what kind of great work you guys got going on.
1: Yeah, so um, my official title is the sustainability manager at and Associates, and we are a small consor- consulting firm out of Sacramento, California. Um, so we've been in the solid waste industry, I think Evan started the company, you know, 25 years ago or so, um, really to assist with planning and implementation of recycling and organic, so organic and rec- like traditional recycling programs for the solid waste industry. So we really help build facilities. We do RFPs, we do grants, we do master plans. Um, I was hired about almost 15 years ago to start doing more sustainability work. So coming in and thinking about how operations could include what are more traditional sustainability metrics within their operations and looking at greenhouse gas programs. And then since then I've gotten into a lot of like grant writing and, um, a lot of like RFPs. So when we think about, um, Kind of the importance of the solid waste industry, it's the single largest contract a city will ever sign is with your solid waste tolerance. <laughs> it's fun for working on. So when we think about the competitive bids, and we think about the opportunities to put our best foot forward. That's that is the moment that really the solid waste industry can demonstrate all the work that they might do. So, then with that, um, we have a lobbying arm called the California Compost Coalition. And when SB 1383 was signed, and often when other legislation is signed, we participate in like the rulemaking process. So, with 1383, I got the pleasure of meeting with CalRecycle, maybe you know, 14. 15 times in public settings and private settings to really understand the regulation and how it would impact the salt waste industry, composting centers, jurisdictions, and of course, edible food and non- non-profit Um, but yeah, it's been, um, it's a great company, you know, we're really small and I have a lot of flexibility with it. And so, uh, when I got started in edible food recovery, this was an area that everyone really understood, Mm -hmm. um, it's very new for the solid waste industry and for jurisdictions to really be looking at food recovery and what that means to their business. And so we we took some time to really educate ourselves and then educate the haulers on what their roles would be. Right. So typically, um, one of the best things that we've been able to do is start wrapping up grant programs with a hauling entity and then as a community benefit, like providing money towards edible food recovery in a thoughtful way. And then from that initial point, it's really kind of um, rolled out into a much larger role for me to work with a lot of great nonprofits like Loaves and Fishes or other nonprofits throughout the state and figure out, you know, how how do we make edible food recovery work better now that we're really required to do it? Right. So one of the things that was very impactful for me, was a conversation with a director of a food bank down in Southern California. And he was incredibly impassioned and said, look, you know, this is, this is in the solid waste world and, and we will not be your fourth camp. We will not be the dumping ground for organics because people have to comply with the law. And it really made me think differently about um, how we need to start talking about food recovery and compliance with 1383, because it is completely and wholly different than what we've been asking generators to do in the past. So typically, when you're sorting recyclables and organics, there's no person on the other end, right? There's a machine, there's a technology. And now that we're requiring them to recover edible food, we know that we need to do this in a much more thoughtful way and that we need to get beyond the box checking requirements that we see kind of in 1383 and really take the opportunity to do a more wholesome change right within our system so
0: yeah you know interesting you mentioned your your conversation with the uh the gentleman from the food bank in southern california because food recovery has evolved throughout the years right and uh, I, I look i kind of when I talk about it, it's like a third phase, right? This is part three. Part one was your dry goods, which your cereals and beans and rice and so forth, right? That's how that how pantries started. Then a few years ago, many years ago, whatever, they're like, "Hey, well, we have uh, gro- uh, fruits and vegetables available, and people need to be more healthy and everything else," so they start recovering. That part of it, right, and uh, and also some meat and stuff like that, but that has that was not really the focus. Of the protein, uh, the fruit and vegetables, and then. Now, prepare prepare food, which is completely different. That is yep. brand new, and, and to your point, it is very difficult, very different. It requires uh, a lot more uh, safety oh. and equipment, and everything. not cheap to do, mm-hmm. and uh, you cannot always do it with volunteers. Even you know, people would like to think that we nonprofits operate. Only with volunteers and we should only operate with volunteers because that's what we need to do it. Uh, but that's a different conversation, a much longer one. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with that in mind, you know what is the biggest uh challenge uh that we're facing on SB thirteen eighty three as it comes to the you already kind of mentioned it, but if you elaborate on the biggest challenge for the prepared food and the thinking that the education part that is well, it's what what we do not know about it. Maybe put yeah, it that way. Yes.
1: No, I think it's it's a really great question, and I think it's it's funny as we start peeling back different aspects of 1383 and edible food recovery. There's always like really long conversations behind it. But one of the things, so I've been lucky enough to help with a lot of capacity studies throughout the state, right? And so that's that's a really great place to start with. Um, so, when it's a jurisdiction? A city and county? Hopefully, like a region. And we investigate where do they stand now with food recovery and what do they need to do in order to get to prepared food, right? Because we know this is the biggest lift. And what we see over and over again is um, jurisdictions fundamentally do not understand how edible food recovery works. And in their mind, they believe this is something that's very simple, right? The nonprofits should be lucky to be able to be connected with so many more generators to start collecting food because they're doing all this great work and we want to help feed people and everyone should feel really good about this. And the reality is, is it's not that simple and that nonprofits are really, they're doing amazing work, but they need help and they need support because we're struggling with volunteers. We're struggling to put fuel in trucks. We may not have the administration to... You know track all the pounds that are required for 1383 or even just to make sure that we are implementing safety programs that keeps all the food within temperature controls all mm-hmm. like throughout the food chain right and one of it it's amazing once you start really talking face to face with jurisdictions um in their minds You know, food goes from point A to point B, and then it's fed to people. There's there's not an understanding of the complexity of the network that happens with food recovery, the specific roles of food banks and larger pantries and smaller pantries and individuals who are coming in two different resources and the roles of kitchens you know, for prepared food. And when we start really talking about that complexity and then what's going to be required for prepared food, particularly to keep food within temperature, mm-hmm. that's where people kind of come off the rails. And that's why I say like we have to get off the box checking because really. There's easy buttons that jurisdictions can press to make sure that they've done their job and they've made sure the contracts are in place. You know, the generators are doing their best to recover food, but that's not going to lead to success right? And when we say success, that's actually creating positive impacts for the community to expand healthy food in a dignified manner to feed mm-hmm. people. And so I think a lot of that education is where the challenges are, that everybody kind of moved into this realm feeling really good that they were doing the right thing without understanding the nuances and the challenges. And then of course the funding that goes with it. Because when we talk about prepared food, we need to make sure that generators have ways to cool the food and storage on hand and that it stays cold until it gets to what, wherever its final destination is. right? And that might be through one or two agencies. Um, so I think, I mean, that's that's the biggest thing for me is that there's a desire to make this easy mm-hmm. and it's really, really not.
0: <laughs> you know, we're going to give credit to a friend of ours, Mike Diorakis, who talks about uh, and uh, uh, sustainability on the capacity studies that a lot of different folks have done. The one thing, and the one thing that, for example, affects us and loves some fishes is we, we can find more food, we can recover it, but it's making sure that it goes out correctly is the throughput of the whole process, right? So you're going to recover a thousand pounds, you need to make sure that the thousand pounds can go to the right organization so they can yeah. distribute it to the people, and you do not but even a thousand pounds, and they can get it out, and five hundred goes to the trash anyway, right? Absolutely. You return yeah. that. So I, you know, that's I think one of those things that he uh, said. I don't know if that was, was looked at. It, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, capacity studies have to do with can it be recovered? Yes, but right. can it be distributed? I think maybe that was something that missed a little bit here and there because a lot there's so many organizations right. that receive food and yeah. they don't have capacity now here's another problem that i i have encountered because this is such a, is becoming a, a more trendy problem
1: mm-hmm. just like
0: everything else we're having a lot of folks get into this uh, uh business we'll call it that way that I, they're not they don't they shouldn't be here they, they're doing right. fantastic work in other areas they should just leave this one alone but now there's carrots out there with funding and stuff like that and they're like well there's money got to jump on it i'm not yeah. saying that they shouldn't they they feel that they can do it but i think we're getting folks into this business that uh they're not prepared they don't have the, the equipment they don't have the know-how they don't have a lot of the things and we're going to end it up uh with with issues of uh all yeah. the, of different kinds right Um, Yeah. So
1: I think the point on disposal is really huge. And that and we can kind of sort of characterize this as a flaw within the rulemaking of 1383. And I do believe it was done with good intention. Right. So when they went through the rulemaking process, they heard from a lot of nonprofits that are saying all the things we're saying that this is hard. It's not easy. You know, we don't have the staff to report and who are fundamentally worried about reporting their disposal in case it stops them from receiving more food, right? And oftentimes it's not a nonprofit is doing anything wrong. It's just that that actual throughput or reliance on volunteers can be incredibly challenging or they might be getting junk to start with that should have never come to them, right? So, um, and I think with disposal, that that's another area within our capacity studies we're sort of touching on, but I feel like that's where we need as a broader group of people to start acknowledging that these are not numbers we should be afraid to talk about. Yeah. Because I think there's huge fear with it, right? That we need to start taking more accountability and responsibility as a jurisdiction who might be enforcing or a nonprofit who who might be afraid to say no, that these are conversations we need to have. Mm-hmm. Because if all we're doing is shifting the disposal from one group to another, we're not actually meeting the intention of 1383 and any funding that's put towards food recovery is not actually resulting in the impact it was intended to. So when it comes to disposal, one of the things that we sort of talk about as we encourage jurisdictions to consider funding programs, that those disposal numbers be included in reporting from nonprofits and not as a negative as not to say like, well, nonprofit, you're not doing your job and therefore we're going to take money away from you, but Mm -hmm. more can we help increase the efficiency? Is there more that we can do from the Safeway who might be sending inappropriate materials to the nonprofits? Can that be part of the enforcement mechanism to make sure that we're avoiding that donation dumping? So I think it's it's really it's a really good conversation and and I don't know if enough <laughs> is being done right now like to really push this yeah. issue and talk mm-hmm. about this issue. But I think you know part of our our state. Our um, statewide board through the Edible Food Recovery Technical Council. Like, th- this is something that we really need to do a good job of educating people. Um, and I think the tie is to funding. I, I think that's the mechanism that we start getting those numbers. Um, because everybody understands that if we're going to put state funds or public funds towards something, it needs to be transparent and it needs to be the impact of that result needs to be successful um and then i'll, t- I'll touch on the new <laughs> folks too so this is something that i get um i actually wrote a little bit of a paper on it last year and we were talking both talking about our master's classes but yeah. um i i get really nervous about this and so i think it's everybody's looking at it and it's kind of a cool like hot topic and everybody wants to feel good about it um but there's not there's not a lot of clarity in what's happening with food safety regarding some of these new, new ventures that we see. Um, and so, I mean, this is food safety is something, again, within these capacity studies, as we talk about next steps, like this is what we need to make sure that we're prioritizing above anything else, right? Above disposal reporting, above mm-hmm. how many meals, it's making sure that as we expand generators, we're doing it safely. And so it's um it's a good question to make sure that as we get these new individuals in. Are we holding them to the same
0: standards as all the tried and trusted,
1: you know, nonprofits have been held to for such a long time?
0: Yeah, that's a great. Uh, that's a great point, and that's something that I think you know. Uh, again, it goes back to uh, this. Is, well, I guess we didn't know what we didn't until it came up, and that's one of those things that this is something there. And uh, before we get into the funding, uh, you know, something that. Uh, um, somebody mentioned that maybe we should try to do is figure out a safety certification or food safety certification. I mean, a lot of folks do the uh, surf save uh, 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 food manager and things like that. Yes, you take a class, a couple hours. It does, you know, you do learn a lot. It gives you a lot of awareness, and it's important to have that. But I think as organizations, if you're going to get into food recovery or you're, you know, that kind of thing, you need to have some sort of... Uh, uh, mm-hmm. a minimum standard that you will have right and uh, I, I know so then it becomes a law it becomes something mandatory uh, but I think it's something that maybe needs to start as a volunteer program where you're learning about best practices things that you should, you think, you should think and uh, have in mind when you're going to do this part like the food part the whole throughput of the food or whatever right and everything else uh, I, I think that's something that maybe it, it will be beneficial taking that you know you're right at CCRA we've done a lot of work at the uh, food recovery and other organizations, same thing with uh, best practices and and things. But a way to implement it will be to maybe create some sort of a certification program uh, Mm -hmm. for organizations, right? So you have to actually go through some steps and show that you're doing it. and you have the not only know-how, but the equipment and everything else to really be able to have uh, prepared meal, uh, prepared food safety, you know, and all your steps in the process, right? So that could be something to think about, maybe a little different conversation too. As we go on tangents and it's funny you mentioned funding because i think funding not we talk about funding for nonprofits and things like that because they're the one doing all the work but I, the one part that i haven't heard a lot of people talk about on the funding side is food producers right there's some mm-hmm. large food producers that can absorb the cost right they have lots of money uh, or they have more money i don't have a lot but they have more money but there's a lot of smaller Food producers that might not have that extra money to pay for, you know, a restaurant, a small restaurant or restaurant that is uh, over five thousand square feet because you know they 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 they, they, they left anything under five thousand square feet out. That means most uh most fast food will not be uh, part of SB thirteen eighty three. Uh well mm-hmm. thought of them in Sacramento, good job. Um you know, now it, you will think, oh my god, it's junk food, but food is food. And some of those are sandwiches and stuff like that that's you know, the problem is, is so I understand eating a Big Mac is bad. But if you eat one every day or three times a day, I understand. But once in a while, they're not gonna kill you. Um I think you know it's food. But anyhow, that's a little bit for that's it. another tangent we can get into. But there's restaurants that are smaller, uh, margins restaurants are not they're hard, they're they're not great sometimes. And but at the end of the day you have food and then you gotta package So you gotta pay somebody an hour or hour and a half to cool everything, make sure that everything gets cooled down. This package maybe gets labeled, gets put away, and then you can pay for the materials and everything else. And you can accumulate $15,000, $20,000 worth of expense pretty easy throughout yeah. a year. And that could be a difference between some sort of margin or, or, or gain or profit for the owner of the, or the restaurant or whatever. So I think there's some so smaller. My point is to some small restaurants like that and things like that, they need to have some funding because the idea, and I understand, we tell them, it's tax deductible. Great. But you can only yeah. talk about 10% out of that in your taxes. It's not like you yeah, can talk about 5000 thousand, right? Because yeah. um, it's a very small amount. Plus, you're carrying all that cost in front, and then eventually it's going to give you some money back, right? So my point is, we need to think about how do we also help the producers uh, right. of food and the small ones. Yeah. And like I said, maybe you're more involved in some of this uh, detail than I am, but I yeah. haven't heard that conversation a lot. I do hear a lot about funding Nonprofits, 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 and that's great. I'll take the money. i want a nonprofit, right? But I think the folks that are providing me food need some help too. They have yeah. to be a balance so they can start the safety, the packaging, the label, everything yeah. that we're going to ask them to do, and and kind of share that part, right? Uh, what yeah. are your thoughts on, on 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 that part of the funding and how yeah. it maybe should be should be a, 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 a thought about?
1: yeah no I think it's um they're really good points and I think especially as we talk about prepared food that's particularly where we're we're talking about maybe installing equipment at a generator that they they may not have already as part of their kitchen and what what I would say is that the first part of it is um to acknowledge the burden that these generators are already facing so 1383 doesn't only ask these generators to recover food, but they're also asking generators to separate organics and subscribe to service that they may not have before, which comes at a cost to those generators. So what I would say is the first step is making sure that we don't unduly increase their cost for food recovery. And so this is something that's been highly debated about Um, when when we talk about funding, sort of this easy button approach is, well, generators should pay for it, right? They're Mm -hmm. the ones who see the benefit of it, they're the ones who have to participate. Um, this is an easy button approach that I don't think is going to be successful for some of the reasons that you're saying, that these these generators are already seeing a cost um, as far as manpower and subscribing to food recovery. They're seeing a cost through that organic spend that they're being asked to um, implement at their operations. And if anything, what we should be thoughtful about is creating a model where all of these programs are are bundled together as a service offering to generators. Right. So if we think about the solid waste fee, quite often we talk about bundled rates so in at my house i pay one rate and i get three cans we can think about this for a restaurant that you would pay your three for your three cans and for the edible food recovery service to be provided to you so that you don't have that additional outlay of cost so the second part of it is um i'm going to go back to the capacity studies and you know our focus right now has been really on tier 2 I'm sorry, Tier 1 implementation and then preparing for Tier 2 with the idea that all of the jurisdictions need to walk down this path and then revisit the metrics. Right. So as we get into Tier 2, we need to be thoughtful about this. And through that secondary process, part of the conversation with generators has to be what are your barriers to implementation and as a region should we be providing equipment or some kind of support either in education, um, you know, flash freezers, whatever, to generators that have to comply that don't have the ability to absorb that in operations. And then when we look at it as a regional approach, that means that we can be more thoughtful about where the funding is coming from. So I brought up this idea that we could wrap funding up into some of the solid waste fees. That's true. I don't think 100% of the burden should be placed on the solid waste fees because again, we're just passing it on to the generator that way. Yeah. Um, but we could, you know, think about. A pot of money, and some of it's brought in by solid waste. Some of it could be philanthropic. Other ones could be, you know, McDonald's good charity funds. Some of it could be through healthcare programs. Some of it could be through grants for, you know, mm-hmm. HUD grants for homeless or, um, You know, even um, we haven't even talked about agriculture and the role that agriculture has in food waste that is completely ignored through 1383 and responsible for the vast majority of food waste that we experience within our society. So they're not the bad guys with it. It's just 1383 didn't have that reach And so they should certainly be included as part of an interested stakeholder through a long-term approach. So I think that's, I mean, to me, it's... it's not a simple answer, but I do wholeheartedly agree that we shouldn't be just increasing everybody's burden. We should be thoughtful, right? We should be yeah. considering the network. We should be considering partnerships. We should be talking to them and asking them and, and bringing them along with as much of a carrot as possible and less of a stick when it comes to food recovery because it's important and because of yeah. the safety aspects, they have to be invested in the success of
0: it. Right. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the... Uh agricultural part and yeah, it's not part of this. And but I think a lot of it ends up being not as much as a uh, growers, farmers and so forth uh fault as it is a consumer problem. Right. Because, you know, we want that perfect apple and the perfect yeah. lettuce and the perfect this. We're not willing to do that ugly uh, uh fruit or vegetable because eh, you know it looks bad or whatever. So I think that's a big part of it. Uh you know, we we are so, particularly in the United States, we're so spoiled at having that perfect food. And mm. then, of course, too, we want strawberries year-round. And, you know, yeah. when they're not available in California, they're bringing them out of Chile, and then they bring right. them out of Australia. So then farms in, uh, 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 farmland in other places in the world turn from whatever their normal season was to grow strawberries for California, or for the United States for that matter, or whatever, right? So we... Not only us, but i you mean know, a lot of other uh, uh, bigger economies, Europe and stuff like that, drive a lot of this, uh, but they do blame the US for a lot, a lot of this and then maybe we do own a lot, a big chunk of it, but that's a different conversation. But that's part of that. It's part of that waste that we're talking about. But we'll, like I said, now I got three more tangents on that topic so we can, <laughs> we can talk some more about it. that would be another one. We'll yes, have have
1: lo- global food system sustainability is a very big topic. Um, yeah. But I do think, you know, what's interesting about this, and I think what's really nice for everybody to stop and pause at the moment is 1383, with the inclusion of edible food recovery, has yeah. provided right. a huge spotlight on f- food-related issues, Right. So when we're talking about food insecurity, when we're talking about homelessness, when we're talking about waste, you know how our current solid waste system works and where we should be prioritizing investment and funding, the importance of this within climate change. So one of the amazing things that I heard this year, um, which I'm sure has been going around for in the last few years, was if if methane at a landfill is the largest single source within california right so if we think about all of the investment we're making into electric cars into energy efficiency um methane is the thing that is the thing that we have to tackle Mm -hmm. and if we capture and remove methane away from landfills we can significantly impact climate change and methane at landfills is food that that is it it's food And so, this is a huge, huge way for us to make the world a better place, and to start talking about climate change in a very real and tangible way. And so, edible food recovery is the way that we need to (laughs) deal with food, right? Whether it's at a grower or a producer or a restaurant, Um, if it's we're thinking about the cost of you know shipping food around the world, this is really the way that we can help Mm -hmm. combat climate change. And and we're lucky to be here, and we're lucky to have actual tangible solutions to it, because I think so much about battling climate change feels very out of our control. And this is something that's fully within our ability as a state to deal with, and that's very exciting.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, food waste. When I first got into uh, food recovery and all that stuff, learning many years, and you're an expert on it, I've been only around three years, uh, a little bit three years from this, so I know enough to be dangerous, right? And, uh, but when we're talking about the millions of pounds of food wasted every day in California, for example, and you know, you can put a number, and you, you just can't visualize it because you can't. But, uh, and I, I gotta find the article. Uh, what I found is we've, we waste enough food in California every day to fill the Rose Bowl. So, have you ever seen the Rose Bowl? It's a big, big stadium, right? 90,000 people can sit on it, you know, deep and so forth. We fill it every day with wasted food so mm-hmm. that alone gives you an idea uh, on, on the magnitude of this problem and again it's a very deep problem to your point you're talking about you know uh world uh food uh, uh supply and waste and everything else that that we mentioned but i guess it's something that is much much larger than this but this is a good beginning it's a way to start it 40 yep. percent of food gets uh wasted worldwide not only here and mm-hmm. uh you know what we're going to run out of farmland and other stuff because the are also killing the, the soil or we can go on on tangents right and uh, sustainability wise so we'll we'll cut on that one but to finish uh, to kind of wrap this up because like I said I wrote down three or four different topics that we're gonna need to come back and talk about Monica <laughs> is the uh, so if there was a you were talking about fees for example of the uh, haulers and so forth and some of those can only I think I could be wrong, but you can correct me. That will have to be some legislation to move that around because it's already uh, part of a law how the money should be used. Now, there might be some latitude there, but if there was a follow-up legislation to SB 1383 to kind of, I don't want to say close loopholes, but to create funding opportunities or be able to help some of the areas that we we didn't know until it came up, which now came up, What would that look like? What would that uh, legislation would look like? How difficult would it be? Complicated? Would it have to be maybe a bunch of different ones so things don't get, again, convoluted within it? What are Hmm. your thoughts on that?
1: So this is a really good question, and I wish that I had all the answers because that would be amazing. Um, But if I could wave a magic wand, what I would say is that um, we should look at a bundle of legislations that tackle different aspects of food recovery. So one of them we talked about was the safety aspect, right? So requiring a higher standard of safety, um, when it comes to food for nonprofits to sort of meet a threshold, and then that should come with funding and support, right? So the other area that I see, is um, sort of ratifying the role of environmental health with enforcement, and including um, sort of critiques on food safety when it comes to generator participation and nonprofit participation, which also should come with the funding source because our environmental health departments really do need that support right now. Um, and then I would also look at a couple different funding solutions for food recovery. So, you know, the the biggest thing that I've we would love, love to see is some kind of like tip fee reform that we would create funds from an additional fee on landfills that could be rolled back into recycling, composting, and edible food recovery programs. That as a state has been very, very difficult to get forward because there's huge lobbying powers sort of protecting that landfill fee. Um, But there could be other opportunities to look at like ways cities or communities are looking at um kind of like to other taxes and fees associated with facilities or even just the allowance of charging not charging but the allowance of applying a fee to solid waste accounts so one of the things there is a lot of latitude with how we structure solid waste rates and so for example if i'm representing a hauler and we have as part of our bid that we're going to support x dollars per year of food recovery funding and this is part of our bid that could be included if a city wants to include um say a portion of their franchise fee towards edible food recovery there's concern that that may not pass prop 218 because we would be charging non-required generators for food recovery right so if we're only limiting to tier one and tier two as a resident should i have to pay into a program that those that doesn't apply to me and that's been kind of untested but i think having some legislative clarity on that piece and and could it be could we legislate that that's an allowable cost to spread around the solid waste collection fee Perhaps Um, could there be some legislative solutions as far as wrapping um, or further identifying food insecurity as one of the social determinants of health? So we've seen that with insurance companies already that we're recognizing this. Is there a way to turn that into a funding component where we could take. We can acknowledge that the cost of food insecurity is very high. And if we invest in food recovery and invest in getting healthy meals out to individuals, we know as a society that would help reduce cost as far as that specific social determinant of health. So to me, it's a package, right, where we would tackle some very specific things and yeah. some broader yeah. things.
0: Yeah, interesting how some of the lobby around these things, uh, you know, and. It goes back to something I was talking to a friend of mine about. At the end, as of being the greed of human beings, uh, kind of an engineering general, more soapbox situation, all the decisions of companies or the things that they want to do is that short-term profit, Mm -hmm. right? And we don't think about the long-term. And maybe some of them think a little bit. Maybe they do, they don't care. I don't know. But all the decisions that you see, on different things if it comes to you know the gas industry for example you know uh, oil oil industry and other things or whatever you know they should have seen now oil we need it for cars but we need it for so many other things too there's Mm -hmm. so many other products that are probably more important than gasoline well because we need to get around it's important but you use it for plastics for there's so many other things and it's a finite uh uh, resource Mm -hmm. right yeah there is uh, enough uh um, research for, you know, I don't know, 50, 70, 100 years or whatever. But you got to think about it. the human race is going to be around for a thousand more. So eventually we're going to run out. You should be thinking ahead, you know, but that is that I want that money now. So talking about that, that seems to be something that, uh, I, you know, and like yourself taking a, doing a sustainability uh, uh, master's degree, you learn about those little things and you're like, you got to be kidding me. Why are we doing these things? It's not right. I mean, yes, take a little less uh, profit do the right thing and you have something that's going to last much longer, but I think we don't, we don't look at it that way. And, you know, we are the most destructive, uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and it, well, not calls themselves sustainable, but, you know, a race that has been around, you yeah. know, in, in our history, of the world, and, uh, we're, we're doing a great job destroying the world. So I'm hoping that, you know, our kids and uh, the younger generation can, can fix our mistakes, uh, and, and do it better. But, uh, with that soapbox, uh, you know, just it's frustrating sometimes to think about all the things that could be done correctly—plastics <laughs> yeah. and everything else, right? Anyhow, you know, I want to thank you for listening to me talk for a minute, sharing all this great information, being with us in this space. Uh, is there any other last comment, something that we can? Uh, 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 yeah. you wanna wrap up before we leave. Yeah.
1: Sure. I mean, I think the biggest things that I always come back to is that this is a space that everybody has a role in. You know, as we talk about, you know, the ugly fruit and vegetable movement or reducing food waste in your home or, you know, thoughtful purchasing, asking your restaurant or grocery store, are you participating in this or looking for other ways to, you know, volunteer within... A nonprofit, like, are there things that you can do as an individual that can help further this movement with the knowledge that this is this is really important, right? Like the, mm-hmm. this out of all the things that we can do to combat climate change and to really help our communities. Right. So if you take it from an environmental standpoint that this is something I, I, I want to help fix the earth, this helps you. If you think from a social standpoint that I want to support you know, my neighbors that may not be doing as well as I am with the acknowledgement that a lot of our food insecure populations are elderly or young school kids. Um, th- this is an area that everybody can play a very strong role in. And it's nice to know that there's there's something tangible you can do you know, for these really, really big issues that seem very overwhelming. Um, and then always, always, uh, this is something that everybody needs to have their voices together when we talk to elected officials. Elected officials need to know that this topic is important. So yeah. when we talk about capacity studies, you know, we are presenting budgets to staff that they then have to defend against electeds. And if electeds hear chorus of voices saying this is something that we want, we support it, we accept it, then that makes it a lot easier for them to start approving budgets. So um, never be afraid to... <laughs> To send an email saying that this is something that we really want, we yeah. want to help support lows and fishes with the great work that they're doing, or you know whatever region that you're sure. um, you're represented from. Definitely, those are my three
0: takeaways. Thank you, Monica. I appreciate it. Again, you know, I uh, thank you for that, the information and everything you you bring. Uh, knowledge wise. And, uh, like I said, uh, I want to be like you when I grow up type of thing, because (laughs) you know so much about this and, uh, and it's fantastic that you can apply it and try to make a, a difference in the world with, uh, with legislation and all the efforts you guys are working on, uh, to our listeners. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. And until next time, uh, ciao.